that it does turn the world upside down because you've got to renounce uh, or resist every cultural force that's being laid upon you, mm. particularly the cult of me. When we're told, I just want you to give me a Bible verse for my prejudices. I just need you to come to the rally that says refugees go home. I just need you to come along and to turn a blind eye to what I'm doing. And if mm. you do that, you know, I'll give you more tax breaks or I'll appoint your people to the highest positions. It's, it's, all, it's, it's the same temptation over again that uh, religion, Christianity, the name of Jesus can be, can be co-opted in the name of empire. Our, our primary political affiliation is the Lordship of Christ. Hey everyone, welcome to the Inverse Podcast. It's David here. This week's episode is a conversation that we recorded with Jared and Dr. Michael Bird. Now, for those not familiar with Michael Bird, he's a leading academic on New Testament studies and has written a number of books, including an upcoming one with Dr. N.T. Wright. He's a lecturer in theology at Ridley College, and as you'll hear, he's pretty hilarious. Also, the podcast has about 16 incredible yet-to-be-released interviews that we've done. And if you'd like to help us get them out sooner, click the link in the show notes to our Patreon page. Hope you enjoy the episode. Well, Mike, thanks. This is fun. Uh, I was telling Mike earlier that um, one of my heroes is Simon Moyle, who's just walked in the room. Hi, Simon Moyle. Uh, another one of my heroes is uh, Tom Wright, otherwise known as N.T. Wright, and um, I got to hang out with him a number of times. And he said that uh, Dr. Mike is one of Australia's um, best New Testament scholars. So my first question, Mike, is how much did that cost? Like, what? Uh, I think it was probably a, a good steak and a couple of Chardonnays <laughs> from memory. Uh, but no, Tom's, Tom's great. He's very generous. He's very uh, generous and I've been uh, blessed to kind of be able to um, hang around with him and do a few things with him, Yeah, uh, which is also good. It's also quite depressing because you, you see how brilliant he is and kind of how and ordinary. Prolific. Yeah, well, let me give you an example. We were, we were filming some stuff out in like the um, uh, down in Qumran, down near the Dead Sea, you know, just sort of, yeah. you know, on the... Um, uh, east side of Jerusalem. And, Just chucking some rocks. Uh, not quite, not quite. So, um, you know, the, the producers you know, say, Tom, can you give us like seven minutes on explaining Second Temple Judaism? You know, in front of K4 at Qumran. Yep. And he just, you know, off the cuff, gives probably the best succinct overview of ancient Judaism you've heard in your life. Wow. And it's just brilliant. And uh, it's my turn later on. We're up on the Sea of Galilee and uh, it's like, okay, Mike, can you just give us a brief overview of the book of James? And for me, it's like, okay, the book of James, take 35. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's go. It's, um, uh, it's, so it's a bit depressing. Uh, but he, he has, he's one of those few people who is brilliant both in person and in print. Hmm. And they're very redefined. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's very true. Um, part of this conversation for us um, came out of an interaction online that um, I need to ask your forgiveness for. I, I misread a tweet, figure that, a misreading of people <laughs> online, who, who would have thought, um, uh, which was kind of sparked by uh, Egg Boy. And I, I don't want to discuss Egg Boy in any um, great detail, uh, but it it did bring up interesting responses um, in light of the the like horrific happenings of the terrorist attack in Christchurch and um, uh, the 
actions of what, a 16, 17-year-old boy. And, uh, and, and what Fraser Anning actually said as the kind of middle point between the two. That's right. So for those yeah. who don't know or maybe those who are listening, you had the horrible um, terrorist attack in New Zealand. Uh, then an Australian a senator, I can't believe I'm saying that, I know. <laughs> then wrote a uh, number of statements, uh, many of which were appalling. Uh, w- one of the most appalling was he called the perpetrator a vigilante. Now, I don't know whether you know, but a vigilante is someone who kind of um, launches, uses violence to avenge for some injustice, you know, mm. like, you know, Batman's a type of vigilante. Mm. Um, it's almost a heroic thing who, who operates outside the law. Uh, and the perpetrator of this uh, horrible crime in New Zealand was not a vigilante. Uh, he was a terrorist. Now, he was a murderer. Yeah. And you then had Fraser Anning saying things like, well, look, you know, Muslims themselves are culpable, this sort of thing, so none of them are truly innocent. And it's that sort of language and rhetoric that's... Uh, xenophobic to the extreme. Yes, it is. And then he's got the gall to quote the words of Jesus at the end of it. Mm. You know, those who live by the sword die by the sword, uh, which really adds um, insult. So I wrote a little piece in Eternity uh, about that. But then you had um, uh, Anning was down one down here in Victoria uh, where he uh, copped a bit from Egg Boy. And, and egging politicians is why we've actually got the federal police in Australia. For those that don't know that... Um, uh, we had a Prime Minister in 1917 in Queensland trying to conscript people for the First World War and somebody threw an egg and that's why the Federal Police were actually formed to make sure that didn't happen again. Yeah. Um, Should uh, rename them the Egg Patrol. The, the egg, <laughs> our National Egg Patrol. Um, uh, but I, I found uh, your response challenging and so we've decided on a, a passage to open up to, to call us to um, something more, uh, to call us to the way of the cross in resurrection power. And I'm wondering if you'd start by actually yeah, reading gotta, that passage. I've just got to open up to... Uh, one. Okay, this is, I'm, I'm reading from 1 Peter, chapter 3, verses 8 and following. Mm. Now, Peter's writing to the church largely of northern Asia Minor in modern-day Turkey, many of whom are slaves, um, uh, probably mixed Jews and Gentiles. Uh, this is, so he's writing, I think, to them maybe in the uh, late 50s, early 60s, and this is what um, Peter says to them. He says, Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers and sisters. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you will inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Hmm. Um, I think those are, for me, those are very powerful words. They're challenging words hmm. because, you know, I... Uh, I actually like hating my enemies. <laughs> I like imagining them that they are worse than they really are. I like seeing that there is no ambiguity, there is no, um, there is nothing good to them. I, I like to impute to them every bad motive that I can possibly imagine. <laughs> uh, but most people are rarely uh, entirely evil yeah. at all. Okay, mm. not, not not even not even Collingwood is <laughs> is entirely evil. 
Now, I'm from Queensland. I just know that's a football team that none of you like. Right. So, so I'm just- All things to all people right here. Exactly. Yeah, amazing. Exactly. And I think the, the, what, I, what I learned from, um, what we learned from Christ is you can't try to out-hate your enemies. Huh. And I think that's the thing. Um, you, you can't out-hate them, uh, but you can't out-love them. Hmm. And love, hatred, hatred is easy because it's natural. Okay, uh, love is the harder option. Um, now that doesn't mean we cannot call out evil for what it is. Sure, the Christchurch tragedy. What Fraser Anning said, I called it out, mm. and I had some choice words to use to denounce sure. what he said, drawing on the resources of the cr- Christian tradition. Uh, but I'd probably fall short of egging someone. Yeah, because <laughs> I'm, I'm left wondering who who would Martin Luther King egg. That's what I want to, and I, I and I I can't come up I, I can't really come up with too many people I think he'd egg. Um, WWMLKD. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So this isn't obviously where you started. Um, what's your story with this book that has such authority for you sitting in your lap? When do you first remember encountering the scriptures, and what has been that journey from this being so important to you now? And being able to um, say what, uh, you know, for me doesn't come naturally to, to my heart and yet I know I'm called to if I'm going to take. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in Brisbane in a uh, non-Christian home. Hmm. Okay, and I can honestly say everything I knew about Christianity growing up, I learned from Ned Flanders. <laughs> that was pretty, pretty much what I learned about Christianity was from there. Uh, but I, you know, I joined. I had a somewhat dysfunctional upbringing, so I left home as soon as I could, and I joined the army. That was my mm. uh, sure way out. So I joined the army, and uh, you know, then sort of got involved in what I would call sort of the you know, the army lifestyle, which is kind of work hard and play hard mm-hmm. type of thing. But I found that very very meaningless, and I got invited to church by a colleague, and I just assumed that all churches were filled with moralizing geriatrics. <laughs> Uh, who are worried that somewhere, somehow, a young person is smiling. Uh, and the church I went to, was it was a new church plant in um, eastern Sydney, just south of Liverpool, near, near the army barracks. Mm. And the people there were not moralising geriatrics. They were from all walks of life, doctors, secretaries, teachers, accountants, butchers, bakers, candlestick makers, that type of thing. But they were different. Yeah, They were st- different. I don't mean like weirdly different, like kind of like, you know, Brunswick different. Uh, <laughs> that's a suburb of Melbourne in case you're wondering. I mean they were personally, ethically different. They had a, a certain warmth and glow about them. Wow. They had joy. They had love. They had compassion. And I wondered what they made them different and I found out what the difference was. The difference was was Jesus. Mm. And then I heard the good news of Christ, his his death, his resurrection, the forgiveness of sins. And in 1994, I prayed to receive Christ. And thereafter, for me, the world was a different place. Wow. And uh, I, I gradually got more and more excited about Scripture to the point I wanted to get involved in Christian ministry and I wanted to be a, a biblical scholar and spend my time telling people about the good news of the gospel and what it means for them. Mm. But where this passage starts in terms of um, not returning evil for evil and not getting caught up in that cycle, uh, that's a little, that's quite challenging, I guess, if your life is coming out of a a worldview where uh, uh, working hard and parting hard in a system that sometimes um, uh, when it's not at its best actually um, 
can function on vengeance instead of any higher ethical uh, calling. Exactly, and uh, vengeance is a very powerful mm. uh, emotion. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, if you think about it, so many of our movies are all vengeance-based. Um, you know, I mean, you think of any good movie, there's usually someone out for revenge. Now, whether that's the <laughs> Count of Monte Cristo, which is, you know, probably the, the best revenge novel of all, all the way through to, you know, John Wick. Yes, right. Um, <laughs> You know, re- re- revenge sells. People like the idea of getting revenge. Mm. Uh, but importantly, we're told to renounce revenge in order to leave room for God's own mm. justice at the end of history. Miroslav Volf has got a, a very yeah. interesting point on this. I mean, uh, uh, Volf argues for the idea of an eternal judgment is the grounds for pacifism yes, or the grounds for resisting violence yep. is we know that God himself is the one who will deal out the just deserts at the end of history, yeah. who will weigh and measure all deeds and give to each as they deserve for what they've done in the body. Yes. Uh, which is a very powerful, uh, a very powerful thought to, to consider. And that those final chapters in Exclusion and Embrace, um, Wolf asks for not um, liberal considerations of pacifism, mm. but instead what it is for oppressed people who deeply desire justice yeah. to be able to honour that and at the same time hand it over for that's in God's hands not yep. ours. First reading this book that you've now dedicated your professional life to, that um, uh, it, it's not merely morning devotions but um, what you get paid for is, is studying this. When you first encountered the Bible, for you, Mike, was it something that turned your world upside down? Was it something that you saw as propping the world up as it is? Was it How, how did the dynamics of how this text wrestles with itself start to wrestle with your soul and your life and how you saw the world? I think in every way you just said, it does turn the world upside down because you've got to renounce uh, or resist every cultural force that's being laid upon you, mm. particularly the cult of me. You know, mm. you know we, we are constantly bombarded in our media with forces and messages to drive us to be selfish. Yeah. You know, for, for example, what's, what's the motto of L'Oreal? What's the motto of L'Oreal? Who can tell me? L'Oreal, because you're... Because you're worth it. Yes, I am worth it. I should buy lipstick. (laughs) If I don't buy lipstick, it means I'm worth nothing. I should have lipstick because I'm worth it. Or what's uh, what's the name of that uh, life insurance company? Uh, That's the motto is the most important person in the world. You. Yes, I am the most important person in the world. I should get good life insurance. Huh. I mean, everything is premised on that. So you, you've, got to, you've got to resist that yeah. and instead be shaped by a different pattern, a different uh, exemplar, a different story, different symbols to shape who you are. And that's difficult because yeah. you, you're, you're constantly having to battle this magnetic force to conform you to the image of the world mm. and what it values, what it prizes, what it esteems and mm. to worship it. And it is a daily battle of resisting that. And that's why I like the idea someone once said, I don't just preach to change the world. I preach to stop the world from changing, changing me. me. Yeah. That is so uh, important. Because and another thing I'll add to that is imitation is inevitable. Yes, that's right. Okay. We are all imitators. Humans mm-hmm. are mimetic creatures. Yeah. Okay. And we, we become what we admire. Yes. 
that and, and you've you've got to remember that and you have to see that in yourself and if you if the if the things around you are violent unhealthy destructive that's what you admire that's what you become mm. so you need to set before yourself something as i think paul would say mm-hmm. uh, to the, the Thessalonians, something which is praiseworthy and virtuous yes. and emulate that because we will all emulate something none of yeah. us live in a vacuum so you've got to find something that is praiseworthy and for me that is Christ Jesus himself. Amen. So, and uh, I mean, someone asked me once, you know, why do I remain a Christian? And uh, I mean, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a number of reasons. It's one of them is the sheer worshipability of Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, to whom shall we go? He has the words of eternal life. So uh, that, that's how the book shapes me by yeah. f- forcing me to resist the world and sort of being conformed to the world to be Christoformed, to be conformed to the pattern of Christ. Amen. Amen. That's really hard. Like, at least I, I find it really hard. And even to, to be honest and like about my response to the egg boy thing, there was a part of me, Mike, which was just like, yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, I'm, I'm not encouraging punching fascists. Yeah. I'm, um, uh, I'm not saying it's a great tactic, I'm not saying it's redemptive. But there, were, there was part of me in the egg boy thing that um, spoke truth to power in yep. such a way. Um, I'm also aware that it took the focus away from the victims mm-hmm. and their stories yep. and our grief and lament. And it also moved, I, I got a uh, message from a um, uh, Wiradjuri uh, woman who's a close friend who saw that tonight we'd be discussing egg boy and she said, why are you talking about egg boy? instead of what went on. Exactly, Which, exactly. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the desire is to lash out, even if it's something as, as comical or banal as throwing an egg. Yeah. Uh, and it was symbolic for people wanted. People wanted something against Anning. Uh, but what you have to do is reserve judgment at the one level. I mean, I wrote to you know my local member saying, look, if there's a way to throw this guy out of the parliament mm. that's legal and democratic... I mean, th- throw his gluteus maximus out of there, you know, <laughs> if there's a legal democratic way. But sadly, within our parliamentary rules, there isn't. Yeah. So at the next election, uh, that way, you know, you can get rid of him. Yeah. Or failing that, it's through the judgment of God himself. Now, we can resist what he says. We can um, refute it. We don't have to give him a platform. The media doesn't have to give him attention. Uh, they don't have to do that. So we've got to do everything within our power to do it. But I think the desire to lash out must be re, re, uh, must be resisted. I mean, I often talk to some um, non-Christians about this. Mm. Every now and again, I'll have a conversation about non-retaliation. They don't like it. They want they want to they want to punch a Nazi. Mm. And I, I mean, I tell them I could I could quote the you know the words of you know Jesus to you. You know, love your enemies and bless those who persecute. So, but I give them a, a quote that they might like. Uh, some people like the words of Jesus. Some people are more fitting to get the words of Friedrich Nietzsche, who was a mm. 19th century anti-Semitic philosopher who died of syphilis. <laughs> there are some people who probably relate to him better than Jesus. And Nietzsche said something I think they can relate to. And he says, when you fight a monster, make sure it's not you who becomes the monster. Mm. Because when you stare into the abyss, the abyss, abyss stares yeah. back into you. Yep. Okay. Because you can, it's easy to become worse than the cancer than you're becoming. Mm. And uh, if there's one, one final thing I'll just finish on there is what I've learnt is that the greatest violence in the world is not done by men who believe that what they do is wicked. 
It's done by men who believe that what they do is righteous. Yeah. I mean, the New Zealand tacker, he believed he was right. Mm. He was protecting people. Mm. He was maybe getting payback for know, anything down to 9-11, whatever crazy, kooky things. Mm. Everyone who does violence usually believes they are the good guy or the, or the good person. Yep. And it becomes a justification for all sorts of things. Their violence is evil. My violence is just. Yeah. That's a ve- that, that is a very poisonous um, that's a very poisonous toxin to take because it is so effective yeah. in changing your thinking. And I'm tempted to ask, when pacifism often becomes an excuse for an interest in my own innocence rather than the suffering of others, but I, I think that would move us away from the way of Jesus, that we can discuss the way of Jesus as a philosophy um, other than to do with the lordship of mm. Jesus. So let yeah. me ask directly, when it comes to the way of Jesus, when it comes to the way of the cross, when it comes to um, living faithfully and loyally to this way of not being overcome by evil with evil but overcoming evil with good in witness to how Christ has conquered evil, how do we avoid the concern being my own righteousness, my own being in the right, How do we, because I often feel that those who have the courage to um, take up the sword uh, for defending those who are vulnerable, um, if those of us who claim the cross of Christ don't have the same courage that they Mm. have while rejecting the sword, the cross isn't a foolishness. It just seems like a, a way of choosing passivity and cowardice instead. How do we avoid being in that place where uh, um, uh, talking about mm. nonviolence doesn't become a way of talking about our innocence instead of a concern yeah, for the Yeah, I mean, th- this actually came up in a recent um, uh, uh, sci-fi show I've been watching called The Expanse. Yeah, right. So I don't know if you've been watching that on. I think it's on um, Amazon Prime. I think it might be on. Hmm. Uh, where there's a, a character who spares this other, this, this woman tries to kill a guy and then this lead woman is able to save this other woman from the death penalty and she reflects on why she did it and she wanted to believe that there maybe there was something innocent but she says the real reason she did it ultimately was her own vanity hmm. she wanted to see herself as a kind of a, a savior figure or to believe there was something good and we, we can do things from motives of self-interest even when those things are, are probably good as to how we avoid thinking ourselves as purely innocence uh, I, I like to think that this is not simply a way of trying to create our own moral capital <laughs> that we can lord over others. Mm. Yeah, and if that's what you're trying to do, then you're obviously doing it for the wrong reasons. And you've got to be committed that it is the right thing, even if it costs you something. Mm. It's easy, easy to do the right thing when it's a convenience, when it makes you look good or it gives you bragging rights. It's harder to do the right thing if you're incurring shame or if it costs you something. And I would often ask people, you know, do they stand to benefit in some way from this position? Hmm. And in the case of Eggboy, I think he did benefit a bit. He became a bit of a, uh, a celebrity, even if it was only for 15 minutes or something. Hmm. And that, that is a very bad motivation to do the right thing hmm. because you'll be seen to do it. You'll receive accolades and praise. They'll praise your virtue, your innocence, hmm. that type of a thing. He also faced fascist thugs who 
beat them up in, in well, response. Well, that is true. There was there and, was a short term price of being um, strangled for a for a while. The, <laughs> yeah, um, which is not good. Uh, I'm I'm so aware that often when we turn to these kind of questions that we talk about it in the abstract. We talk about nonviolence as a theory or we talk about just war theory and uh, we ask questions about Stoic philosophy that Augustine was drawing on and we don't talk about my story and your story. Um, uh, I have family that served in the forces. In fact, my my uncle PJ Patrick Joseph, he, he wasn't given his citizenship in Australia while the rest of the family, when they migrated in the 70s, already had it, he had to go serve two tours of Vietnam yeah. before they gave him citizenship. Um, uh, I'm a McKenna. We migrated from Northern Ireland. Um, my grandmother's wake in Perth, Australia, people saying we're off to join the IRA. That's where uh, the family identity is so... Um, uh, firmly in this story of uh, um, being willing to suffer for what is right, even if it means doing what is wrong mm. and asking for forgiveness. And that's how it was seen. It was never seen that um, uh, killing a Brit was something that God would bless, but we're willing to do it for freedom. Yeah. Well, and that becomes an ends and means, you know, to achieve a lot of good, you have to do a little bit of evil. Um, yeah. which is, uh, I think, wrong. I mean, Charles Spurgeon had a wonderful statement. Like, you know, uh, he said, when faced with t- two evils, choose neither. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah. Uh, m- many many people were uh, quoting this during the last U.S. presidential election. Um, <laughs> uh, a, a lot, uh, whatever you think of American pop. Yeah, but when you're faced with two evils, choose neither, um, which I think has uh, a lot of relevance for us for a whole bunch of um, debates in Australia. Mm. And yet, how do I speak a word of hope to my ancestors living in a situation of discrimination, uh, living in a situation of oppression, living in a situation where after the killing of... And so my tour, Mike, of um, uh, the first time I went to Ireland, I was taken to a pub and uh, during the lunch while we're eating, I'm told that this is where my dad's grandar was blown up in, but they didn't kill him straight away. It took a month for him to die in intensive care and there was a sense of pride for the family. My tour of the local neighbourhood is where here's where your cousin was shot by the British troops Mm. Um, and it was uh, Derry in 72 where British soldiers killed people who, inspired by Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement, said we're going to non-violently seek a a united Ireland. And British troops opened fire on unarmed people, killing 14 people. And in response to that, it was the biggest recruitment drive that the IRA had ever done. And it killed the civil rights movement in in Northern Ireland. How do we speak a word of hope that is better than the blood of Abel? I mean, I think violence proves to be the... uh the the equivalent of McNuggets, <laughs> probably. Uh, it tastes really good for the short term, but it's not going to satisfy you. Mm. And you know, even if you paint the streets with blood, it will never be enough mm. to make the pain go away. And that's what people have said. You know, I thought if I just kill this person, my grief would go. It didn't. Mm. I, I was grieving, and now all I did was make someone else grieve. Mm. And it's it's hard it's hard to see that. 
at the time because you you feel the pain of wrong, of injustice, of uh, of uh, of oppression, that type of a thing. But ultimately, if you, if you look what happened in Northern Ireland, I think it was not so much the violence that that won. No. Because there were violence on both sides. The violence yeah. didn't win. Ultimately, it was men and women committed to peace were the ones yeah. who brought an end to the violence. Yeah. And, th- and that is what happens in the long game. Uh, I mean, we can talk about, you know, other places uh, in the world. I mean, Palestine's the classic one. Yeah. You know, Gaza is basically just one big prison yes. uh, in one sense. Uh, but at the same time, you have to acknowledge what is done in Gaza uh, is often very terrible. It's just as bad as some of the oppression they receive from a from an imperial uh, force. Hmm. Um, so if you if you're going to break the cycle, break the circuit, you need someone uh, and th- who's got this radical idea. Well, instead of doing what we've done the last hundred times, instead of you know painting the world in the, the blood of each other, there's got to be another way. And I can see how central that was for the early Christians' practice. Hmm. That um, I mean, Miroslav Volf commenting about this passage. Uh, that it doesn't call for um, uh, open revolution and yet the revolutionary practice of this amongst the early church yeah. is why each decade the church grew by 40% because yeah. the way of Jesus um, uh, was connected to the proclamation of Jesus is the way. Yeah. We have churches today who, um, despite that cycle in the Middle East, because of certain ways that we think history has to turn out yeah. um, uh, for, for God to be sovereign, um, will unquestionably back one side of a conflict. Oh yes. Um, despite the fact that Christians in the Holy Lands are predominantly Palestinian, and they've been there since well, um, Acts two. That's yeah. <laughs> that's, oh, that's Acts when, one. Well, yeah. yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, why is it that passages like this so often bend the knee to theologies that don't bend the knee? To Jesus and His cross, like if this is the way of the cross in practice, mm. if if um, uh, not replaying evil with evil, insult with insult, but with blessing, if if that is how God has responded to us, why is it we find so easy to dismiss the way of Jesus for other ways, and we have theologies to back it up? Oh yeah, people will develop whole ways of reading the Bible that will uh, justify or even venerate their prejudices. Mm. Okay. And, uh, you know, just as the devil himself was trying to twist Scripture right. against Jesus. Mm. Um, like I, I was, the other day I was teaching my, um, my students on the temptations of Jesus in uh, the Gospel of Luke uh, mm. chapter 3, and I gave them a parody. I remember saying, you know, and Donald Trump took all the evangelicals up and he showed them all of America <laughs> and he said, I will give you all this if you will bow down and worship me. And the American Evangelical Church said, throw in two chief justices and you've got a deal. <laughs> um, th- there, is the, there, is the, uh, there, was the, there is the temptation to do that, yeah. to somehow seize worldly power by providing religious capital to certain ambitions, whether they are nationalistic or whether they are xenophobic. Mm. Just invest your religious or moral capital in that and I will give you what you want, power, influence, Wealth, success—it's the—it's the same temptation Christ faced on the, on uh, in the wilderness. That's right. And he—he, uh, he, unlike Adam, unlike Israel, unlike us, 
He was faithful where others failed. And as we follow the example of Christ, that is what we've got to do. When we're told, I just want you to give me a Bible verse for my prejudices. I just need you to come to the rally that says refugees go home. I just Mm. need you to come along and to turn a blind eye to what I'm doing. And if Mm. you do that, you know, I'll give you more tax breaks or I'll appoint your people to the highest positions. It's, it's it's, It's the same temptation over again, that uh, religion, Christianity, the name of Jesus, can be can be co-opted in the name of empire mm. or party. And th- let me say, this goes to the left and the right. It's not all just the, sure. the Trumps of the world. It's yeah. it's also uh, it, it's also on the other side yep. too. And we've got to we've got to avoid that because we've got to say nobody owns us. Yeah. Okay. We're not a, a we're not a political demographic. Our, our primary political affiliation is the Lordship of Christ, Amen. which doesn't mean we withdraw from the world, but it also means we can never invest the totality of our hopes in this world and terrestrial politicians and powers. Yeah. Um, it doesn't mean you can't vote or you can't campaign or advocate for something. You do it, but you've always got to remember that is only an instrumental thing which is fallible. Mm. It can be coerced. It can be broken. It can be abused and wrongly used, but our ultimate allegiance is to the Lordship of Christ. And in terms of Peter as the apostle, the same Peter who our Lord says put the sword away after healing the ear that Peter was willing to pack heat and, and defend Christ, if Surely, I mean, um, John Deere talks about, not the tractor guy, yeah. different John Deere, nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize by Desmond Tutu. He said, if ever there was a time where it was justified for the people of God to use violence, surely it was to defend Jesus. Yeah. And yet our Jesus tells us to put our sword away. Yeah. And yet I know it, how easy it is to make fun of American realities. I mean, it's a national pastime. It's how Australians feel better about themselves. Yeah. Um, uh, but if we bring these realities um, uh, not to Northern Ireland or not to that nation just south of Canada and north of Mexico, but if we talk about talk about the national stories that are taken to be sacred here um, regardless of their historical grounding mm. and particularly those who are involved in those tragedies, how they've passed now and so their pleads to never forget the horror, mm. n- to remember so we don't do it again. Those voices have now passed. They're no longer with us. And every time Anzac Day wheels around, like it's easy to make fun of Americans. It's easy to talk about Northern Ireland. But to talk about the sacred stories that will take parts of Scripture, no greater love has anyone to lay down their life for their friend, and not put it in the context of a Peter Mm. who has been disarmed. And it it calls on, for, for those of us who have had family that served, I mean, this it's easy if you're an Australian to go, oh, finally, Scripture's been talked about in public. This yeah. must be a wonderful opportunity for the yeah. church. And yet we find ourselves up on a, a hill saying all of this will be yours if you... How, how do we discern such a way to talk to the reality that we don't spit in the face of diggers who have given so much... Yeah while not spitting in the face of those dividing with those dividing the garments as they gamble for Christ's clothes and spit in his face because we reject his way. But we do it with Bible verses for some greater good. Yeah, that, that, is, that is a, a hard one to answer. It raises the whole question of the ethics of you know, having a military, you know, when is war justified? Um, I think it's fair to say World War I 
um, where the Anzac uh, legend was forged, was one of the stupidest wars ever, which could have been resolved with a bunch of European aristocrats That's just right. given a couple of bottles of brandy and pistols <laughs> and locked in a ballroom and, taught yeah. and said last one standing, you know, gets to be king of the Rhine for a day or something like that. And then yeah. not have the punitive effects of uh, um, punishing Germany in such ways that they would exactly. democratically vote for a fascist exactly. because of what the rest of Europe destroyed Exactly, and uh, I mean, like you know, World War One was—they called it the War to End all Wars. It was you know, one of the, the most stupidest and needless wars that everyone just seemed to jump in because they wanted to know what an industrial level war would look like, mm. and they found out, and it wasn't good, uh, and that had all. So yeah, on the one hand, I, I think the uh, you know tying your heritage to something like that mm. um, has always uh, uh, sort of troubled me. On the same time. I do think the war fought against Nazi Germany and what it did was a legitimate mm. conflict. And I, I do want to... And I do, would you talk to us a little bit about just war theory? Because the, there's two orthodox faithful positions yep. for Christians throughout the ages. One yep. is the, the nonviolence of Christ. Yep. And the other one that the church in the East and the West has um, upheld uh, through... Augustine's teaching is just war theory, which isn't it's just a war yeah. or war is just. On these uncertain conditions. But, yeah, would yeah. you talk to that? Because some I, I know whole churches yeah. that would never touch on the nonviolence of our Lord yeah. um, and would say there is a place for Christians taking up the sword in a limited capacity um, in seeking justice, just like the Quran says. Yeah. Um, but they wouldn't say it because of the Quran. They'd say it despite the New Testament. Yeah. Would you talk to what, in terms of Christian faithfulness to the tradition of just war or what Walter Wink would call violence reduction criteria, yep. what is that criteria that it means that only these circumstances could a Christian fight if they don't hold to purely the nonviolence of Jesus? Yeah, that's a good thing. I would say nonviolence should be the default setting. Mm. So I think that should be the default setting. But there, I think there do come points in the history of the world where the right thing to do to defend life, to not not defend sovereignty or things like national sure. pride. I mean, those things are just you know ridiculous. Yeah. You know, I'm not into the God, King, and country. I think that's a pretty ridiculous recipe for any war. Yes. Uh, but when you see evil being done, to to step in and to stop it. Now, the danger is often when you do step in, you can end up doing more harm than good. And I think we've seen that happen with a number of wars uh, in more recent times or you're just meddling in affairs that you don't fully understand. I mean, like if you look at the conflict in Syria, yep. it's not a two-party war between them and us. There's like and six, it's not one war. It's, it's several wars yes, being exactly. fought in proxy. Exactly. Yeah. It's like 16 different – I've seen a map of it. Yep. It's like 16 different parties right. based on religious, political – uh, rivalries uh, and trying to pick a side in that, it's or even trying to form a kind of coalition, mm. it just makes it uh, even worse. But I believe there are some cases where you know military intervention was justified and can be done in a way that is appropriate uh, and has the best of intentions and good outcomes. Probably the best example I can think of in the living memory would be the uh, East Timor East campaign. Timor, sure. That is where you did have Australia uh, under the sponsorship of the United Nations with the, albeit reluctant, permission of Indonesia where you, they, they did go in and they did uh, protect um, the local populace from pro-Indonesian militias who were carrying out 
what were crimes against humanity. Which is still happening in West Papua. And Exactly. Yeah. So I think that was a that was the way of fighting an armed conflict. And there were there were bullets fired. There, yeah. there was conflict that went on. Uh, so if there is a good way of fighting a war, um, a good reason to fight a war, uh, I think that was it. The sad reality, though, is wars are very rarely fought on those terms. That's right. Have such positive outcomes. Mm. And that is the real challenge. And I'm aware that as a pastor, we've so often barely formed our people to resist our urges to do to them what they've done to us. And often in our churches, there is a legion of spirits of an empire that is present. That means that we think about ourselves like in World War One, belt buckle said, in God we trust. Yeah. Or even army chaplains, the official motto of the Australian Army Chaplains Corps is in this sign conquer. Um, Lord have mercy. So, uh, which like, is which is what Constantine wrote on the shields of his soldiers yeah. in the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, yeah. which was effectively the beginnings of Christendom. Yes. So the complexity of because it's often accused of like um, quite uh, public um, uh, advocates of nonviolence, um, such as Simon Moyle and such as myself, that we get told we're naive. Um, that. Uh, to to expect that much that this is um, r- ridiculous. And yet I think those who don't know just war theory would sign up and obey orders without actually understanding and think that some limited use of using the way of Satan um, could actually um, bring limit to take this passage seriously, to reply evil with evil in a limited situation um, could bring about some good. It seems to have a logic which doesn't trust in the sovereignty of God, but in our ability to calculate history turning out right if we're only unfaithful in these little things. How, how do we have the humility to say, for those of us on the side that say um, Christian nonviolence is what we're called to, we must have the humility to risk as much as those who would be willing to take up. And those who are willing to take up the sort, how do we talk about the realities that the early church did see it as a sin yeah. and they weren't included around the Eucharist, around the Lord's table um, for a period of a whole year once returning as a way of healing from the evil that they did as acknowledgement in that in community. When what happened when my uncle PJ came back from war is that people put buttons on him, paraded him through the street, said you you did a good thing and no one listened to his pain. Mm. No one listened to what he was commanded to do. What woke him up in the night, the post-traumatic stress disorder that he dealt with, it was the peace movement which actually gave him space to hear those things that he couldn't confess because everybody was patting him on the back and saying, well done. Yeah. How do we be a faithful people with the complexities of both these positions instead of make it as simple as um, just war theory's got no place in the church or pacifism is completely naive? Yeah, I think they're, they're both options and they both they, – the problem is they both have good compelling reasons for them. Mm. And then you add the sort of the messiness of uh, human existence – and and you know what what you find in in scripture, you got to you have to wrestle with that, and you have to figure out within the precincts of your own conscience 
how do you, how do you, you know, what do you do? I mean, Bonhoeffer faces question. Mm. Remember, it's funny. Remember, Bonhoeffer faced the choice: do I go to India and That's study right. pacifism with with Gandhi, with Gandhi yep. or do I stay in Germany and plan to assassinate Hitler? Yeah, those are stark choices. Yeah. You know, pacifism and a few veggie curries in India, or <laughs> kind of. Um, Sausages and a bomb plot to get rid of the Führer. I mean, and that's pretty. As Mark Thessination has um, uh, shown brilliantly in his book um, Bonhoeffer the Assassin? Question mark. Even the way that we read into Bonhoeffer's story, what we don't, what Bonhoeffer was actually executed for, was disturbing the peace mm. and being a people smuggler. Bonhoeffer was people was smuggling Jews out of Germany. That's what he was executed for. In terms of um, uh, solid proof, um, despite Metaxas's uh, biography. Oh, I'm not just talking about Metaxas. Sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah. One of his closest friends um, also uh, thought that he was involved, but there is also enough. But it's a convenient story. It's why our Prime Minister, um, Kevin Rudd, chose Bonhoeffer as a figure. Yep. It's why um, uh, Barack Obama... Uh, chose Niebuhr as his favourite theologian. Yep. If you can hold up high ideals while at the same time going, the way of Jesus isn't realistic in a fallen world, um, that that is very that that works a lot better if you're trying mm. to get voted in, right? Like, it does, it does. Uh, but it is either way. It's it's a struggle we face um, as to what you do. This and in every case mm. is different. Whether it's local conflicts or regional conflicts. You know, what do you do to support and save life? Mm. And that there is no one Bible verse you can go to that I believe settles it all. Mm. Uh, you simply have to, you know, practice the art of discernment and work out within your own conscience mm. uh, what is the right thing to do. I know one thing is when certainly when it comes to training uh, men and women who do go into conflict, I remember one chaplain telling some soldiers who were about to go away, he said, do not do in war what you cannot live with in peace, mm. which I think is, is very important. I mean, it was quite a contrast. We had a Canadian warrant officer who told some soldiers it's better to be tried by 12 than carried by six. Yeah. Uh, which is one sort of piece of advice. Then you have a chaplain saying, don't do in peace what you cannot do in war. Mm. Uh, sorry, well, do, can, do not do in war what you cannot live with in sure. peace, along those lines. So uh, you, you need sort of you know, moral character formation to make sure that, that you know, people who do go to these um, areas uh, understand that, that there are, there are certain, certain things that a Christian should not do and so, you know, killing civilians and things like that. Mike, if we were sitting... Um, in a worship service in February 2003 before the war in Iraq had been announced and this war doesn't meet just war criteria um, and uh, most Christian bodies around the world, the Southern Baptists exempt, um, uh, went public in that this is not a just war. Mm. And if we have people in our congregations who are serving in a capacity, yeah. how does the church respond to our brothers and sisters who the state asked to go and possibly kill, which is a sin, mm. for some greater good despite the fact it doesn't meet just war criteria? What is the role in the church in our very individualised society which uh, wants to say it's just up to you and your conscience? Uh, well, that's a good question. I think the ancient church would probably uh, experience some form of... I don't know if I'd call it discipline, but would certainly yeah. um, distance themselves from that type of a thing. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you could, I think you could make a 
bigger case going into Afghanistan, where that which was basically a base for al-Qaeda, had more legitimacy to it. Going into Iraq, I think, was a mixture of oil, business, <laughs> business opportunities, and they had not yet shed enough Arab blood to their um, to to um, quench their thirst for vengeance after 9-11. Mm. There was a whole bunch of stupid reasons. But it was a stupid and, war. And yet it went the on for so long. Yeah, of it, ISIS, yeah. when we look at this well, passage, do not apply evil for evil, yeah. ISIS is what was birthed yeah. from that unjust war. Yeah. And the church, whether... You're a Christian that holds the just war teaching or whether you hold to Christian nonviolence yeah, I think, like I think, the early church. Yeah, Iraq War too. I don't think was a just war. It was uh, the stupidest war since the First World War. And yet most of our churches thought it was something not to speak to. And that when we're so enculturated, and I thought um, you so beautifully talked to this passage right at the start, talking about the realities of um, uh, what it is to renounce, why do we find it easier um, when a kid smacks the, an egg on the back of a white supremacist mm. um, to go, that's wrong. And yet when our kids are being sent out to war, possibly to die in unjust wars, we don't know whether to raise our voice and tell our kids, no, this is not the way of Christ. Put mm. down your sword, follow Jesus, trust in resurrection. There is no church that can be called to be a martyrs if we kill our enemies. Yeah. How do we actually develop the moral courage as a, a people that were formed in such a way that despite the fact all our entertainment tells us vengeance is right oh, if, it's, if it's for the good guys, yeah. how do we actually say no to war? I think it's partly avoiding the tribalism. So whether it's my party, my country, my government sends me to do this. You know, that, that idea, my country right or wrong, mm. my country right or wrong. You think, well, no, if my country's wrong, I'm not going to go and fight with them. I mean, for me, the biggest one is the military involvement in setting up um, offshore refugee processing. Yep. I mean, that pains me. Yep. I mean, I'll be honest with you, Jared. I'm pretty conservative theologically, politically. I'm so conservative, I took the left-hand indicator off my car. <laughs> driving, from, driving from East Doncaster via, via Donvale... You know, I had to get here via Box Hill. Right. <laughs> okay. That's how conservative yeah. I am, Jared. Yeah. And, you know, I, like I said, I'm a patriot. I've served in my country. Yeah. And uh, there was a, I mean, you know, I, I, would be, I would be willing to do certain things to defend our freedom against those who would do evil against us. I, I guess I've been at that. I've never had to do that, but I've, you know, faced that question. I believe yeah. under certain conditions I would do it. But when I think of some of the things that I think, you know, what would I die for? What would I kill for in extreme circumstances? I'll be honest with you, locking up refugee children on some godforsaken rock in the South Pacific was really not one of them. Yeah. Uh, if the Australian military has have one great thing it can pride itself on, it's this. Normally, we have liberated concentration camps. Mm -hmm. We have not set them up. Yes. Okay. And that is what has made us generally, that's right, generally better than the others. We liberate the concentration camps. We don't put them in kids, children, refugees in concentration camps because it, it satisfies some of the xenophobic tendencies of the demographic, which the politicians can cultivate for electoral success. Mm. And that that is probably the probably the one example that's something that really 
pains me. And uh, and I know military folk who, who feel very the same way, who feel very conflicted yeah. when they're involved in things like Operation Sovereign Borders yeah. because they know this is this is a political tool that's going to help certain people. Yeah. And look, let me acknowledge too, it is complex. I understand yeah. they don't want people to die at sea. I understand, you know, you know, people smoking. I'm not saying it's all black and white, but, you know, anything where you're asked to set up concentration camps where people, men, yep. women, and children will be indefinitely. Yeah. I just, I could not be party to that. Yes. And and yet in Australia's own history in the 70s, the Liberal Party under Malcolm Fraser, we had an answer for people not dying at sea. Yeah. It was getting boats and bringing them here safely. Yeah. And it, and it, it was, doesn't take that much imagination. Ironically, really it, was, it was Gough Whitlam who was really against the boat people. Yeah, because be, he thought that they were all the anti-communist. They were all anti-communist. Yeah, they're going to vote for the Liberal Party. Yeah, he, yeah. yeah he, had some, he had some rather choice adjectives to describe these Asian folks coming over. Yep. So uh, it's it's amazing how the political sort of stakes have um, changed. Have switched. It, have switched. Yes. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's uh, in a sad irony if there ever was one. And and this is my um, – we've only got to hang out a couple of times, but you can probably tell um, my dad was a union organiser. Mm. Um, uh, like for, for my family, um, to, to be uh, faithful to Jesus meant to vote for working people yeah. on my dad's side. My mum's side of the family um, are Russian Jews. And what I find amazing is our addiction to think that violence can somehow bring about something good yeah. and in some situations in this justified, that we don't actually look at the evidence of where are the cases where the most Jews were actually protected in resistance to Nazi Germany. Sorry, Norway, I'm guessing. It was actually Denmark. Over 6,000 Jews had their lives saved in Denmark and it it happened so not because of a commitment to the nonviolence of Jesus. It happened because nonviolence was their only means available to them. And we so quickly think that nonviolence won't work and yet um, Erica Chinoweth herself, a military background, um, uh, it, her work studying what actually works in 1989 alone, we saw um, 1.4 billion people involved in non-violent revolution. And out of those 14 revolutions that happened that year, all but two were successful. Uh, one being China. Yep. Um, and uh, the one that didn't maintain its non-violence was Romania, where yep. Ceausescu was dragged in the street and shot ah, like yep. a dog. And, yep. um, but so often it's Christian people who know they are saved by the cross, who disregard the cross as our way of seeing transformation in the world. Thinking practically, given, um, uh, given the way that the human heart is, how do we keep open our imagination? Should our churches be teaching the nonviolence of Jesus and just war theory in such a way that we're already prepared for war? Or should we just be teaching nonviolence and then when it does come to those situations, go here is the limited ways that it's available? Um, I'm honestly asking, what, what do you think is the best approach to well, those things? Well, I guess in, in our approach, and I, I'm, a, I'm a seminary professor, so we, we, we raise these questions. I mean, I've got students in ethics class where they have to confront the questions, the arguments for pacifism uh, and for just war theory. And then they've got to figure out for themselves... Uh, and then, and so then, then they've got to go back to their churches, and they've got to teach their people. Mm. You know, when they do things. So when you know, when you, when you get to a new war, or something happens, and people want to know what should we think of this, people say, what should I believe? What should I do? 
uh, and that is where the uh, pastors, because they're pay- paid the big bucks, mm. um, <laughs> have to then go out uh, and and come up with a position and set before them what they've wrestled with God and Scripture and then the Christian tradition of, 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 of what they believe is true and then ultimately teach it to their people uh, knowing that they're accountable to God and whether that's for pacifism or for just war theory or for whatever it is. Mm. I think that's the, uh, like I said, the best thing you have to do is work out within the precincts of your own conscience what is the right thing to do mm. and then uh, and then stand by it. With the humility to admit maybe you were wrong or maybe change yes. your mind yeah. um, and to recognise other people, um, you know, pacifists are not kind of necessarily just cowards. Mm. Or you know, uh, or taking a, a a kind of conscientious way out of it, and similarly, people who believe in just war theory uh, may not be you know warmongers or yeah. might be, uh, but they may not as necessarily. Pacifists might be cowards. That's right. As, as yeah. pacifists <laughs> might be cowards. That, but but this is the thing: human existence is messy, and you've got to be willing to live with ambiguity and complexity. Mm. It's it's too easy to believe everything in life is black and white. Mm. Okay, everything in life in black and is black and white. It's not. It's it's always messy and complex, and you've got to be willing to acknowledge that and wrestle with that, and simply work out how you apply the lordship of Christ to that situation. Yeah, and um, sometimes it's choosing who we're going to be wrong with, right? Like having the humility that we might be wrong, and deciding where we're going to. Stand. And I guess part of that and the humility of that is actually having a position. Mm. Um, I mean, for me to, to not teach that Jesus in our baptism, which you know, Peter goes on to talk about mm. in, in this passage, um, calls us to lay down all sorts, um, uh, is to, to not teach the cross, is to not mm. teach the foolishness of the cross. And I, I don't think that my sisters and brothers who teach in a different way aren't saved. Uh, I don't think I'm a better Christian, I don't think, but in terms of my teaching, answering to God and, and my role, um, I believe that it is required of me and what will be required of, mm. of me to give an account for is have I taught people how to love their enemies, yep. bless those that curse you, do good to those who persecute you. Have I told people that turning the other cheek is not an optional extra and it doesn't mean being a coward, yep. it's our way of fighting, fighting the lamb's e- war exactly. with the lamb's Exactly, way. I mean, passivism can be its own form of very active resistance mm. and you can also uh, pay for your life with it. Yes. Okay, so it's it's not purely um, uh, just sitting back at home saying, oh, Lord, I wish there wasn't a war. Please make the war stop. Yeah. Uh, it can be far more than that. I mean, you've only got to see the Martin Luther King is, of course, the ultimate example yeah. uh, of someone who experienced that. But, yeah, we've all got to, you know, we've all got to do what we think is right and uh, stand before our Lord on the final day and give an account of ourselves. And that's why I appreciate this conversation so much because, as I started to say before, um, you were talking about uh, the right uh, or the left indicator on your car. Yes. Um, the, our baptism, um, I, I might be formed by a culture that is on the other side and uh, you're my brother, I have so much to learn mm. from you, not just because of like your brilliance but because you're my brother and because you see things differently, not just because you're a brilliant biblical scholar that's internationally respected um, but because we do see things differently and I think that's part of the live in harmony with one another, be sympathetic, love one another as sisters and 
brothers be compassionate and humble, or as 1 Thessalonians 5.19, giving a a similar summary of not repaying evil for evil says, be kind to one another and those outside the community as well. Exactly. I I want to thank you for your kindness in this conversation. um, uh, That um, hopefully the way that we've been able to disagree and encourage each other has witnessed to Jesus. um, And uh, uh, my temptation to to pick up eggs um, (laughs) uh, has been addressed and our temptation to avoid Christ's lordship and go some other way, whether it be cowardice or whether it be taking up the sword, has been checked at the cross. Uh, I thank you for that. Thank you, uh, Jared. I think I could summarise by saying more Jesus, less eggs. More Jesus, less, less eggs. Violence, domination, injustice, <laughs> oppression. Amen. Thanks very Indeed. much. Amen. Thank you, Jared.